You are listening to Melbourne Lights Church Weekly Podcast. Morning. How are you doing? All the better for seeing you, Mark. Happy Father's Day. For like the 10th time today, happy Father's Day to all the fathers, from me to you. If you're a guest with us, obviously we want to welcome you today. Thank you for coming. Uh, If you come with family, um, I hope you feel welcome. If you're a father, we want to honor you this morning. Um, We want to honor what you bring. Thank you for pursuing Jesus. Thank you for setting an example for your family and for for us as a church family as well. And you know, the, the world needs and the church needs fathers. Not just men who have had kids, but men who are pursuing Jesus, who are full of his spirit, who, are, who, who love their family, who love others, who model what it looks like to become like Christ. We need that. And so if that's you, thank you. If you're growing in that and you're new, thank you. Give, give the fathers a hand this morning. One of the biggest attacks of the enemy in our culture is against fathers. Because the way we see our natural father and we relate to our natural father so often impacts the way we see our heavenly father. And I realize that um, even while we honor the fathers on Father's Day, it can be a difficult time if you didn't know your father or if you've lost your father or you had an absent or abusive father um, or a father who, who just hasn't mod- modeled the heart of God um, to us. And my prayer, honestly, for, for us this morning and for you is that Jesus would bring comfort. That actually, this wouldn't just be a, a day to get through, but that he would bring his presence and you'd experience his comfort and his kindness and his love. And that in community, you would see the Father heart of God modeled. I pray for, for you this morning that the mistakes and failings of your natural father wouldn't impact your relationship with your heavenly father. And that where there is hurt and pain, that the Heavenly Father would come and bring healing and restoration. So Lord, we thank you this morning, Lord, for men who are passionately pursuing you, and we honor them in this house today. Lord, and for those who have had a poor picture or a poor relationship or no relationship with their father and carry her, I pray this morning for healing, for peace, for your comfort, Lord, I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the comforter. Would you come right now and let us together in community hold one another up? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Jump in your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. I feel like for somebody, and it doesn't have to do necessarily with what I'm going to preach this morning, but I think around Father's Day and family, as we were worshiping, I just kept hearing this phrase, this freedom in family, this freedom in family. And um, I, I feel like there's somebody here today, uh, and maybe it's more than one, um, but actually the, that God's drawing you back to his community, back to his family. And I, I just feel like he, he wants to speak to you. He's saying there's freedom in family, in his family. Maybe not in your natural family. Maybe your natural family is a picture of dysfunction, and there's no freedom there. But in his family, there's freedom. And he's speaking to, to somebody today. So that's for you. Um, I'd love to uh, talk to you afterwards or, you know, in- encourage you in that. Grab hold of that. There's freedom in his family. 
We're preaching at the moment through the book of James, which is why there's a big picture of James up there. Um, James is a book about faith and about maturing and about the outworking of our faith. What does it look like? It's often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because there's lots of wisdom and there's lots of application in the book of James. James 1 talks about faith that's mature, um, that how we face trials and the hardships and things that come at us in life will either strengthen and mature our faith or will hinder our faith. It talks about not just hearing the word, but being doers of the word. He says if we, if we hear and we don't do, then we deceive ourselves. But when we actually hear and we respond and we put it into practice, we mature in our faith. James chapter 2 talks about the fruit of our faith, the practical outworking of being with Jesus. That the way we live, the way we think, the way we act, the way we treat people, how we love and care for people should be, has to be transformed by being with Jesus. We can't be with Jesus and not look different. We can say we've been with Jesus and not look different, but if we actually spend time with him, we're going to look different, act different, live different, love different, and become more like him. James says that faith that doesn't bear fruit is dead faith. James 3 talks about the power of our words, sort of the outworking of that. What does that fruitfulness look like? The power um, of our words, and that what comes out of our mouths is an indication of what's in our hearts. And then James finishes chapter 3 with talking about wisdom. He asked the question, where are we going to for wisdom? Um, James 4, we're going to jump into James 4 today, from verse 1 to 12. It's kind of a, he goes on a bit of a rant. Um, he, the, 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 maybe the scriptural word would be a diatribe. Um, he goes on a diatribe against those who fracture the community of faith, the, 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 the local church, the community of believers, due to their selfish ambition. It's like a verbal attack. It's a, it's a rant. And he's asking some questions. He's going after those in the church who are not taking their sin seriously. So there's some, there's some big stuff in here. We're going to unpack it today. We're going to ask God to transform us and to speak to us. But he, goes, he, he really does go for those who aren't taking their sin seriously. And as a result of that, bring division and fractures to the church. Remember, this is flowing on. And for those of you who are visiting today, you can go back and read James if you want to kind of see where we're jumping in. This is flowing on from taming the tongue and asking the Lord for wisdom. James 3.18 finishes with this verse. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's who we want to be. We want to be peacemakers who see a harvest of righteousness. And then he says this in verse 1 of James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not that your passions are at war within, within you? See, in contrast to those who make peace, which should be our goal in the church and in the kingdom... Quarrels and fights are caused by the passions of our self-centered desires. When it actually is about me and what, you know, what, what I see is best for me, my selfish desires, it causes disagreement and quarrels and division because I'm actually thinking about myself and not being a peacemaker and thinking about others. See, when we don't deal with the flesh, when we don't deal with our worldly desires, we become a hindrance to those who God's called us to love and to build up. So actually for all of us, if you're following Jesus, 
We're called to build up others, to love others, to prefer others, to actually go, what's best for those around me? And Jesus says this, that other people will know the church by their love for one another. Now, if we're honest, that hasn't always been the, 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 the truth or the reality of the church, has it? Actually, the church often has been known for its division, the way it talks poorly about each other, the way it puts people down and, and doesn't love others. But if we've been with Jesus, if we're found in his presence and we're becoming more like him, we should become those who love others and who, whose goal is to see their highest and their best. When we don't do that, it causes hindrance and division um, because rather than loving, we fight for what we feel entitled to. We fight for our viewpoints rather than the gospel. We fight for our view of the gospel rather than Jesus' view of the gospel. In, in Romans 12, verse 9 to 18, we're going to read a chunk here, and I, I think it'll come up on the scripture if you don't have your Bibles. It says this, let love be genuine. I mean, we could preach on that all morning. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That is a great scripture. Who have you tried to outdo in showing honor today? Have you shown anyone honor today? Hopefully you've shown your father honor, at least your heavenly father. But outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. This is a great scripture. Talking about passion. Don't be slothful. How often do we show up to church, let alone to the world, and we're like, slothful. We can't even get ourselves to, to stand to worship our king. Woo. I'm not having a go. If you, if you couldn't stand this morning, I wasn't looking at anyone. I was at the front. I was looking forward. I'm not having a crack at you. I'm just saying, how often do we come with such a lack of passion? He's saying, don't be slothful. Be zealous about, be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek how to show hospitality. This is like an expansion of what James is saying. Remember James wrote the book of James before any of the other books of the New Testament apart from the Gospels and Acts. So before any of Paul's letters. So Paul in Romans is like expounding upon a lot of the stuff in James. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. It's all right to weep in the kingdom. Do you know how many scriptures there are in the Bible about weeping? It's all right to be sad. We just don't live in the place of sadness. It's all right to experience the emotions of life. It's all right to go through the valley of the shadow of death. The Bible says Jesus wept. But so often in church, and I'm going on a, on a, on a tangent, but so often in church, it's like the joy of the Lord. And the, the Lord does bring joy. But we get fake about it, and we feel like we don't have the, uh, the, the right to those moments of sadness and weeping and sorrow. We actually need to help people because it says weep with those who weep. Come alongside and say, you know what? Actually, I'm going to weep with you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Reap with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That is a big one. Why are there quarrels among you? Is it not because your passions are at war within you? We're seeking our own selfishness, but Paul expands and says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, as far as you have a role in this, live peaceably. Be a peacemaker. Be at peace. Oof. He goes on to say this in verse 2 and 3. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Oof. You covet and cannot obtain. See, remember he's going on a bit of a rant. Um, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. We ask and we don't receive when we're focused on our own desires and our own pleasure or passions. What I want, rather than what honors God, what advances his kingdom, and what brings him glory. We ask and we don't have because we haven't dealt with the selfish desires of our flesh. And it's actually become more about me than about his kingdom and his glory, and his honor. And we like to claim Psalm 37, verse 4. And, the, and he, he will give you the desires of your heart. He, the Lord. We like that scripture. Lots of people. But the Bible says he's going to give me the desires of my heart. But nobody likes to read the two verses that come before and the verse that comes after that. Because verse 3, and the start of verse 4 says, Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Then it goes on in verse 5 to say, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. So what are the caveats to he will give you the desires of your heart? To trust in the Lord, to do good, to befriend or to feed on faithfulness, to delight yourself in the Lord, to delight in what he delights in, to find your value and fulfillment in that thing, to commit your way to him, and to trust him. To trust his character, to trust his nature, to trust his timing, to trust his provision. And then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Because when we do all that stuff, it realigns us to his glory and his honor and what's actually uh, 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 who he's about, not just what I want. We like to grab hold of half verses, claim them out of context, and then get angry at God because he didn't do what I thought he should do. goes on in verse 4. You adulterous people. Oof, thank you, James. Um, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. <laughs> or do you suppose it is uh, to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God wants your heart. He's setting up this picture, James, and it's sort of his rant about it, it, when we pursue our own passions and our selfish desires, it's not good for those around us. It causes division and quarrels. And then he, 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 he's kind of saying um, that, you know, that, that, that we don't receive what we have because we're being selfish and we're pursuing our own thing rather than what gives him glory and honor. And then he's like, but God wants your heart. He's jealous for you. Why am I writing this to you? Because he's jealous. We can't have a little bit of the world and a little bit of God. That's why James uses such harsh language. And he's, he, he's going on a rant because he's going, I can see what's going on. 
And it just, it, it can't be that way. This is not the best thing for you. We can't have a little bit of the world and a little bit of God because he's jealous for your affections. What does that mean? He wants relationship with you. And he's holy. And he's worthy. And he's other. And he's righteous. And we can't have one foot in both camps. If we just preach self-help, do what's best, do what makes you feel good, do what you desire, like James is kind of ranting against at the beginning here, then, yeah, it's fine. Have a foot in both camps. Because whatever makes you feel good. But if we preach the holiness and the righteousness of God, that Jesus died so that we can have a relationship, that he sacrificed for us, then we can't have a foot in both camps because God's jealous for our affection. He wants all of your affection, not just Sunday morning affection. Every day, all the time, all of your affection, everything that you have is his. Now, I know that none of us are, are living in that place, myself included, where I can say, I know that everything I have, every moment is his. But I want to get to that place. That's the cry of my heart is, God, make me more like you. God, where there's things that, are, that I'm withholding from you, where there's affection that I'm withholding from you and giving to other things, Lord, would you transform my heart? He's jealous for our affections. Imitating the world's way of thinking or the world's activities, the world's wisdom and the way the world does things makes us enemies with God. Because it's either his way and his kingdom, his rule and his reign, or it's something else. We don't like to preach this often because everyone gets really quiet and then they're like, oh. But it's the truth. He desperately desires our spirits to worship him. He desperately desires your affection. He desperately desires time with you. And he's about relationship and intimacy. Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What causes us to think that we can have a little bit of the world and a little bit of God? Or that my desire and what makes me feel good is what's best? It's pride that causes us to think we can have a little bit of the world and a little bit of God. It's pride that causes us to act according to our own wisdom. It's pride that says that I know what's best for me. That our way is better than God's way. And when we're in that place of pride, it becomes about me rather than about his glory. In that place of pride, the Bible actually says that God opposes us. That picture is like being at the sharp end of a spear. I'm trying to go this way and there's the sharp end of the spear pointing at me. You're moving forward, but there's a sharp end of the spear blocking your way of moving forward. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that place where God's opposing me. But it says when we humble ourselves, when we realize that his ways and what, uh, are what is best, and we stop trying to do it ourselves and according to our own wisdom, when we turn to him, he releases grace in our lives. I love that. But he gives more grace. Grace. It releases his presence. It releases his favor. It releases fulfillment. It releases his provision. Humility isn't fake words. 
It's a revelation that I'm nothing without him. That all the wisdom I have, my worldly wisdom, all of my experience is nothing without him. All the wealth I have and all the things I've, I, I've stored up are nothing without him. It's a recognition of who I am, not in relationship to myself, but in relation to who he is. That's true humility. It's not, oh, I'm a worm. No, it's actually, Lord, without you, I have nothing. But because of you, I'm a son of the most high. It's not, I'm a worm. It's actually, I, I, I'm seated in heavenly places. I'm royalty because of who Jesus is. Because in him, I'm a son of God. And in him, I have an inheritance. And in him, I'm marked with the Holy Spirit. False humility is, I'm a worm. I'm broken. Ugh. Real humility is, no, I rule and reign with Christ. But it's not me, it's him. I'm seated in heavenly places. But it's not because of me, it's him. I'm righteous because of his sacrifice. But without that, I'm a broken sinner. It's a recognition of who I am in relation to who God is. Humbling ourselves is the starting point to finding true identity in God. If you get nothing else out of this, out of this morning, please get this. Humbling ourselves is the starting point of finding our true identity in God. And he goes on to say this, submit yourself, therefore, to God. So humble yourself, he releases grace to us. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a beautiful passage. That's a beautiful sentence. Draw near to God, and he will underline that if you have a paper Bible. Highlight it if you have, have your phone. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You're like, what is he talking about? I'll tell you in a second. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Submit yourself to God. Draw near to him. Don't take sin lightly. What is he saying? He, he, he's saying, stop messing around with the things that, that, that Jesus died for you to be free of. He's writing to the guys, that, this is the church in Jerusalem. James is writing and saying, stop messing around with sin. Stop laughing at sin and brokenness. He says there, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because they were taking it lightly. They were like making, making light of sin. They're like, ah, it doesn't matter, whatever. I can do what I want. I can come when I want. I can just waltz into church and it's all fine. Remember, this is... This is like uh, right in the times of the book of Acts. This is like 7 to 12 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is like the, the Holy Spirit is poured out. The, there's people coming. This is when in the book of Acts that they were, they were selling their possessions and laying the, the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And you see the account of Ananias and Sapphira. And it's not that they couldn't have kept what they sold. They sold a piece of land. They came in and they said, this is all the money that we got for it. And they lied because they actually kept some, some for themselves. The point is not that you have to give it all. If anyone teaches you that, that that's, that's not the point of that. The point is that you have to sell your house and give it to the church. No, that's not it. The point is that they lied about what they were doing. And he dropped dead in the presence of God. There is a weightiness 
to the presence of God. And as a people, we're crying out for revival, but we keep making light and laughing at the sin and going, it doesn't really matter, I can come in and out. If somebody dropped dead when the presence of God came, we would probably all start living some very different lives. He says, don't laugh at sin and brokenness. Don't make light of it. Don't brush it off. Our response to sin should be mourning and weeping because it breaks the heart of God. Instead, he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. When we become aware of sin in our lives, we don't brush it off and go, it doesn't really matter. No, we cleanse our hands and we purify our hearts. We come before the Lord and we say, with repentance, and we say, Lord, make me clean again. Put that stuff away. Deal ruthlessly with it. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. See, it takes humility to be honest about where we're actually at. We're usually pretty good in the church at playing the church game. We put on our church face. We come in the door. Hey, how you going? We're like, yeah, good. How's your week been? Oh, it's been great. Hug. Busy. It's been busy. Everyone's busy. We're always busy. How's your week? Yeah, it's pretty busy. Inside, we're weeping and we're broken and we're like, ugh, it's been the worst week ever. I've sinned. I just yelled at my wife in the car. I told my kids that I never want to see him again on the way to church because they, you know, it's like, that's only, you guys never do that? I'm like, God, my kid. <laughs> Father's Day. Father's Day. I'm like, guys. At breakfast this morning, like you have one minute to sort this stuff out, or else this is going to be the worst Father's Day we've ever had. <laughs> and they get like, "Yeah, good. I'm good. I'm good. Busy. Good." It takes humility to actually be honest and open up and go, "Ah, you know what? I'm actually not that great this week. I'm struggling with this thing. Can you stand with me? I need prayer. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I need freedom in this." And maybe it's not on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's, it's in a discipleship group or it's over a coffee or it's picking up the phone and saying, hey, can you pray with me? I'm just really feeling tempted again. Take some humility. It says, humble yourself and he will exalt you. You know, we don't exalt ourselves. We don't promote ourselves. That's the world's wisdom. Just, I'm going to remind you, Melbourne Lights Church, we don't promote ourselves. That's the world's way, the world's wisdom. We humble ourselves and we allow God to exalt because all the glory belongs to him and all the honor belongs to him. You will never find mattdodyministries.com. And that's nothing against anyone who has their name in their website. Just if I do it, please ask me to stop leading the team that leads this church because I just don't believe in it. You can slap me. It's fine. Because we don't promote ourselves. And if someone hasn't had this revelation yet and they're in the kingdom, we honor them and we love them. But for us, we're hearing it. We don't promote ourselves. Anyways, let's move on. I'm getting sidetracked on this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Uh, The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one, there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? This throws back to taming the tongue in the last chapter. It says, don't speak against other brothers or sisters in the Lord. What does that mean? It means that don't, it's not that you can't um, speak to them. It's that we don't speak about them. We like to make ourselves feel better by, by making other people look worse. We like, you know, often, and it's a mark of immaturity, we do that as individuals. We point out the flaw in others so that we feel better about ourselves. But we get self-righteous in the kingdom and we do it as churches. And we do it about believers. And, oh, look at me. I feel better about my sin because look at Jason's sin. Whoa. You know, like, Ugh. he's really like, I'm picking on Jason because he's, he's good. <laughs> so if he's like, mm. <laughs> um, not about the rest of you, but that's no, because he's wearing a white shirt and he stands out in the light. Um, no, we, we like to go, oh, you know, they're a really bad sinner, so I, my sin's okay. It says, don't speak against other brothers and sisters in the Lord. If we're doing it, it's either because, why do we do this? We're prideful because we think we're better, or we're insecure and we don't know our, our identity. So if we're full of pride and we think we're better, we often speak against other people because we think we're better than them. But if we're insecure, born out of that place of insecurity, it's because we don't know our identity and actually we're trying to find our place. Deal with our heart. Pursue Jesus. Live on mission. Don't speak down about other believers. Don't speak down about other churches or ministries. I said a few weeks ago, that, like, God challenged me, and I had to unfollow a whole bunch of, like, church meme accounts, even though I found them hilarious. There was, like, every now and then, there was the not hilarious. There was things that were, like, because you know that in every bit of humor, there's a little bit of truth? We, and we like, to, we like to say, oh, I'm just joking. But there's, like, a little barb in the joke. And God challenged me, because it was, like, if we're going to pray for revival and we ask for more of God's presence... How can we do that and speak poorly of other believers? How can we do that and laugh at jokes about them? I'm not saying that you have to, like, you have to agree with everything everyone else does. I'm just saying we don't have to put them down. Because our standing, my standing as a son of God, has nothing to do with how good or how bad I think you are. It has to do with Jesus. Who we are as a church in the city has nothing to do with whether we see other churches doing the right thing or the wrong thing or what we think about them at all. We're here because Jesus has established a lampstand. And as long as we keep making much of him, we'll continue to be here. If we get off of that track, then things might change. But it doesn't have anything to do with other people. It's not like we're here and if we, if we, if we put them down enough, then people will leave there and come here. We don't want that. People, if people are going to come join Melbourne Lights... It's because they see Jesus, and he's added them. And if he hasn't added them, we don't want them. Anyways, I don't know why I'm getting on that weird that tangent this morning. Verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Thanks, James. All such boasting is evil. 
Told you he was, he was, he's ranting. He's like in the, he's, he's four chapters in here. He's exhorting them. He's not ranting. He's exhorting them and calling them up to more, to be honest. He said, I've, I've laid some foundations about mature faith, about, uh, you know, about standing through trials, about, um, about seeing the fruitfulness of our faith, about what that looks like. Now I'm going, hey, these are things that can't be anymore. If we're going to be mature, we have to deal with these things. And again, James is addressing here those who think that, it, that their wisdom and their wealth and their business prowess will be enough in life. And how often, especially in Western culture, do we fall into that trap? But I'm successful. I'm wealthy. I know things. I'm educated. I don't need Jesus. We might not say that, but we often live like that. He's not saying that planning or investing here is wrong. But arrogant self-confidence, boasting is wrong. Trusting in ourselves is wrong. And as he highlights early in the chapter, are we submitting ourselves and our plans to God? Are we going, you know, because I'm not saying that to have plans is bad. I don't think he's saying that. But are we submitting it to God? Are we focused on our own desires and our own pleasure and what, what I want and what looks best in my eyes or what honors God and what advances his kingdom and what brings him glory? Have we actually asked that question of the decisions that we make? Matthew 6, verse 30, 31 to 34, Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God, and secondly, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What do we seek first? The kingdom? What do we seek next? His righteousness. Are we bringing the plans and the, 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 the things that, you know, that we're thinking about the future under the authority of God and saying, does this bring you glory? Does this honor you? Does this advance your kingdom? His kingdom and his righteousness. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Thank you, Jesus. Sufficient for the day is his own trouble. I love that. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to have its own stuff. There's enough, for to, there's enough going on today for today. That's for somebody this morning. Are we focused on our own desires and our own pleasures or on what honors God and advances his kingdom and brings him glory? It's the ultimate uh, question around submitting myself to the Lord, of him being Lord of my life. That's really what salvation is, that I stop being Lord of my life and he starts being Lord of my life. I get off the throne of Matt Doty, and I put Jesus on the throne of Matt Doty. And I have a new identity. And I have a new, a new lineage. And that's worked out from that day that I make that decision until the day that, I, that this, this earthly body dies and my spirit goes to be with him. That's worked out. And the ultimate question in that process is, am I focused on my own desires and pleasures? on what honors him, advances his kingdom, and brings him glory? Are my decisions based on what I think is best for me or what brings him glory, honor, and advances his kingdom? If you, have, if, if you don't ask that question regularly of yourself, can I suggest that there might be a little bit of a lordship issue in your life?
James finishes the chapter with a key theological verse. He says, so whatever, uh, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There's a whole preach in this verse alone, but I'm going to unpack it in like two minutes for you. This is in the context, remember that we've seen in the whole chapter, of doing what I think is best. Arrogantly, pridefully choosing to follow my own desires, my own plans, rather than seeking the kingdom. And he ends with this little thing. See, in the process, ignoring what God's called me to and his pattern is called the sin of omission. The context is pridefully choosing to follow my own desires, to, to, to follow the things that, that my plans rather than seeking first the kingdom. But in that process of doing that, ignoring the things that he's called me to. See, the sin of commission is the things that I actually do that are sinful. If I choose to come down and punch Olaf in the face and call him a loser, that's something that I've done. That's commission. I'm like commissioning with sin. The sin of omission is the right thing that I fail to do. It's the thing that I know I should do that I choose not to do. If, if Elodie punched all off in the face and called him a loser and I stood here and didn't do anything about it, I'm guilty of the sin of omission. It's the thing that we know we should do or that the Bible tells us to do and that the Lord asks us to do but we don't obey. When we, let's get personal this morning, when we don't love others. Because, you know, here's the thing. Can we be honest? We're like, ah, you sinner. Aren't we? We, we, we see people's sin. Ah, you're, you're living with your boyfriend. Ah, you're, you know, you're doing drugs. Ah, you know, whatever it is, you're a sinner. But when we don't love others, the Bible says to love others. We're guilty of the sin of omission. When we don't serve others. When we make excuses as to why it doesn't apply to me. The Bible says to serve, to love, to give, to, you know, to, to seek the lost, to live on mission. You go, nah, it doesn't apply to me. I've done, I've done that for long enough. I get to rest now. Guilty of the sin of omission. I, I go almost as far as to say you're as guilty as those who are partnering with sin. Because he says, when we make excuses. See, there's a heart issue, and we're, we're as guilty of sin as the person who speaks against his brother or lies or steals or assaults somebody. And if we recognize in that life uh, that, that, that thing in our life, it's the fruit of pride and worldliness, which is what James is talking about. So if we, if we recognize that I hear something or I read something in the Bible and my response is that doesn't apply to me, then you can guarantee there's pride in your heart, which is what James is talking about, and God will oppose you in that area. So you need to humble yourself and say, God, help me deal with this. Set me free. Set me free. 
There's worldliness that's crept into our thinking. When we read something or we hear the truth of God or God asks us to do something and our response is no. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) What are you doing now that you shouldn't be doing? And what are you not doing now that you know you should be doing? What are you omitting? There's a grace caveat in this, is that you can't do what you don't know to do. If you're a new believer, if you are, you know, if if you only just got saved, God is going to show you. So the heart position is when I see it, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to change. But if you've never heard it before, you know, don't don't be like, oh my gosh. When you just, you position your heart to when I see it and when I hear it, I'm going to respond. What are you omitting? See, we're often subtle about it and we make excuses because the heart's deceitful. We create theologies around our omission because it makes us feel better in our sin. We reinterpret the Bible so that we can stay in that place rather than saying, no, God, transform my heart. This is my question for us this morning. I'm finished. Is there pride in your life that you need to deal with and humble yourself? Do you need to cleanse your hands and purify your heart again to come back to that place of intimacy with the Lord? Because he's gracious and he's jealous for you. Do you see yourself in light of who God is and who you are in him or in light of your own ability and self-reliance? Have you been focused on your own pleasure or comfort or what you want rather than what honors God, advances his kingdom, and brings him glory? And here's the thing. Everything in the world, because it's the ploy of the enemy, will tell you if you give up your own pleasure and your own comfort and what you want, you're going to end up sad and miserable. You'll have missed out on life. And the reality is that the further you pursue that, the more broken you'll become and the more sad and miserable you'll become and the more hurt you have to carry. And as soon as you go, no, I'm going to seek first what honors God and advances his kingdom and brings him glory. Everything in the world goes, no, that's crazy. But the kingdom's different. And when you do that, Actually, the pleasure, the joy, the fun, everything finds its meaning there. And, and, and there's freedom. And you don't carry around this brokenness of going further and further down that line. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If you have any questions or would like more information, please contact us at melbournelightschurch.com.au.